Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Brain, the podcast where we bring the cloud down to earth by talking with some of the top minds in the industry. I'm Alex Sage. And I'm Alistair Hodge. We work for CloudSoft as cloud consultants, helping folk move to the cloud and use the cloud better. Today, we're going to talk about serverless with Yen Trey, also known as the burning monk on social media. Hey, guys. Hey, Yen. Why don't we kick off by you telling us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Yen, and uh, I've been, I guess, doing stuff on AWS for well, over 10 years now. I guess uh, my first project on AWS was 10, 2010. Um, yeah, in the last couple of years, uh, I've uh, been focusing on you know, serverless uh, because I think for me, it just makes all the sense in the world. And uh, for a long time, I just keep doing the same thing over and over. You know, every time you've got a new project, you've got to provision your, well, do the sort of, I guess, the resource capacity planning and you have to uh, update all your AMIs. You have to, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, uh, work out what's the right EC2 instance size and all of that stuff. And then you you, know, you spend a lot of time doing that and then setting up the infrastructure to, just so that you can run a couple of lines of JavaScript code. Uh, for a long time, I just really just wanted to have something that I can just, you know, ship the code I want uh, to AWS and then let somebody, let somebody else worry about uh, all the provisioning, scaling and uh, load balancing and security and all of that stuff uh, because I can focus on my application code. Um, so serverless for me just makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, since uh, 2018, I guess I've been... Um, uh, I guess I've been honored as uh, an AWS serverless hero by AWS uh, uh, because I also do a lot of talks. I write a lot of articles and uh, put out video courses out there to teach people how to use serverless and you know, what is serverless, why it makes sense for them as well. Um, and uh, I guess uh, what else? I've been working in quite a number of different industries, uh, you know, spent many years in the gaming industry. Uh, Facebook gaming when it was popular. Then uh, when everyone moved to mobile games, uh, we went to mobile gaming as well. Um, worked for st- um, sports streaming platforms, the social networks, and the uh, e-commerce, and quite a few different industries. Uh, so yeah, I've been around. It's uh, it's been a good, uh, fun career. <laughs> Excellent, really varied. Uh, so let's start simple. For those who have heard the buzz about serverless but never really seen it in practice, don't really know. Uh, you know, what it what it means. Uh, can you give a, a brief description of what is serverless? Yeah, so to me, serverless uh, means uh, you know, any technology uh, where you don't have to worry about so much the provisioning and the management of the infrastructure underneath your code. You can focus on just what you need. Um, and things like, you know, Lambda is probably the most popular one that people refer to, uh, but then you also have other services on an AWS that can that I would consider a serverless, things like DynamoDB, where, you know, everything just works. Uh, in fact, I think most of the, a lot of the SaaS applications uh, that you get out of days uh, now, um, out of the box, where you're only paying for usage, um, you know, those are pretty much serverless as well. I guess that's one of the fastest that uh, often you know, muddle the water a little bit in terms of uh, the pricing model. If you're paying for uptime, then that's still kind of like a serverful concept where you are paying for resources, you're provisioning, and then uh, in some way, how much you actually we want to use versus uh, you just paid for whatever you use. Um, so Lambda fits that bill and so does uh, DynamDB, but then they also have that pay for uptime option as well. And the interesting thing on AWS is that you know, things that you pay um, 
per use tend to be more expensive when you're using them at a very high scale. So many of these services offers the option to pay for uptime uh, as a way to optimize uh, when you know your throughput uh, uh, and it's quite stable. Um, So for me, it's uh, any technology where you don't have to worry about underneath this, you know, the server, kind of like uh, Wi-Fi is uh, wireless, even though there are cables, but when you're using Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi connections, you don't have to worry about the cable yourself. So serverless uh, is kind of the same to me. What a great analogy. That's fantastic. It seems that all the, all the major cloud providers are now offering serverless things. Uh, the serverless has become a ubiquitous term across cloud providers. Are they... Are, are they substitutable for one another? Are they broadly the same? Or is there one provider that is clearly ahead with serverless offerings? Um, I guess I'm slightly biased uh, uh, because I do think AWS in terms of the focus on serverless technologies uh, is, um, is is right up there. And in terms of the actual offering itself, you've looked at the different event sources that can trigger Lambda functions. Um, you know, Lambda obviously is uh, has a lot more triggers compared to the other uh, the, the other cloud offerings like Google Cloud Function uh, and the Your Function as well. Your uh, is probably also a really good offering, uh, especially if you're you know, uh, you're running a Microsoft stack and you're used to working with Microsoft already. Um, Google, I would say, is still very much focused on the container game, and uh, they're still very much focused on the Kubernetes. Uh, and I think that's kind of a missed opportunity for them because they have probably the one of the most um, Maybe one of the best offerings out there in terms of Firebase, uh, like this, the sort of things you can do with Firebase was, was amazing at a time when uh, Google acquired them anyway. Uh, but it's, I feel like it's a bit of a left, uh, it's a bit of a missed opportunity that they haven't done much with the Firebase and it's kind of just been left there um, the last couple of years. Um, but uh, I would say they are quite similar in terms of the uh, the, the different function offerings that the, uh, that you get. There are some significant difference between between Lambda and the other two. In that, um, uh, if I if I remember correctly, uh, this could have changed. By the way, um, both Google and uh, Azure's uh, cloud functions run on top of containers, uh, which means they are they're not able to optimize the underlying formatting and the imaging of the of the. Know, how well, how you package your code as much as the Lambda is able to do. So Lambda is able to do a lot of you know, interesting things in terms of like swapping out the underlying infrastructure bits, uh, well, sorry, virtualization bits and use Firecracker and uh, do some optimization around networking and the uh, code starts and the uh, you know, packaging and using SquashFS to up, you know, to load the zip files and things like that. So that they're able to do a lot of interesting, uh, in, um, a lot of interesting things. Uh, because they are not using, um, uh, I guess, uh, containers as an underlying format. Uh, but otherwise, uh, no, there's some small changes in terms of the, the the function signature when you have to write your code, but those are quite minor. I think the thing that you had really have to worry about is everything else, because your function is just a very small part of your application. Um, the the power comes from how easily you can integrate with other things with your functions, so that uh, it becomes this like a, a glue that connects everything else together, so that you have uh, some kind of a cohesive application that actually does what you need it to do. Uh, and I think that's where uh, Amazon really sort of shines in terms of having that really broad ecosystem um, of different things that you can, you can connect to, both as inputs like event triggers, but also in terms of output. That, that's not to say that there's, some, um, there's nothing good about the other platforms. In fact, I think they, um, 
they have they have some really interesting features like both Google and uh, your uh, uh, functions of, offers like a built-in HTTP endpoint that you can use. Where we, with AWS you have to with Lambda you have to have API Gateway as a separate service to provide the HTTP uh, input. So um, so yeah, so I think it's uh, it's become like a. I don't. I wouldn't say it's, it's it's a commodity yet, but it certainly is not that hard to move your function code around. Uh, but it's everything else that you can kind of have. You kind of have to bring your whole cloud with you, uh, because there's no equivalent to DB on Google Cloud, and this uh, and vice versa. Some great insights there. Uh, it's interesting when to hear you talk about Google. Um, you know, we we almost forget Google App Engine, which was a to my mind, a serverless compute platform before we were talking about serverless. You talk about serverless now and people think Google Cloud Functions or Lambda. Everyone thinks Lambda. But App Engine was doing this serverless stuff years before anyone had heard of AWS Lambda. Is, is App Engine still relevant in the serverless space? Uh, maybe. Uh, I guess the, the thing with uh, Google App Engine is that uh, we actually used it uh, back in 2010 uh, when I was uh, working for that uh, for a more, uh, social um, social gaming company. Um, and uh, App Engine, yeah, you, you you could just take your Flask app and then just upload it and have App Engine running for you. I guess the the the, the, the difference is that you with where we talk about things like Lambda and the serverless application nowadays, uh, there's less of that event trigger. So you know you couldn't just say, uh, oh yeah, I want to react to something happening uh, when someone drops a file into a, a, you know, a, a Google Cloud Storage uh, or something like that and trigger my you know, a small piece of function. And uh, that's, that's, you don't have that pay-as-you-go um, uh, pricing. Uh, you have to decide how many instances you have. To, you, know, you, you want to run. Uh, I think they had some difference between front-end and back-end instances back, uh, in terms of pricing. Uh, but still, you know, you pay for uptime. So there's some like differences, but certainly it's uh, you know, in terms of you know, how I guess serverless you can think of as a spectrum. You don't have to take all the boxes. Uh, the, 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 I guess it doesn't really matter whether something is classified serverless or not. Uh, the, the key thing is that I don't want to deal with infrastructure. Uh, this I want to offload as much of it as possible. And um, App Engine certainly lets me offload a lot of infrastructure to Google, who can do a much better job of uh, of it than me. Um, not to mention the security stuff, uh, because uh, I don't know if anyone was ever, I guess, uh, you know, run EC2 instances, uh, you would know that the moment your your instance goes up, uh, you can see those uh, login attempts from random IP addresses that you, you, know, you have no idea about. Um, so certainly, you know, security-wise, so OS secu um, open system security, uh, you, know, you can get so much better uh, with things like App Engine. Uh, but yeah. App Engine is uh, still very interesting, a, a very very interesting service. Again, um, I wish they had you know, done a bit more and uh, taken the next step in terms of the innovation around pricing and the innovation around the event triggers and things like that. Yeah, and I think that observation that it's a spectrum is a really powerful one. And I think that people get really hung up on uh, what is serverless, particularly when people are new to it and they're trying to understand uh, what they're doing with this, like which services they're really talking about using and so on. Uh, in that on this spectrum, like we can stop worrying about servers if we are using, say, a managed database like RDS. We never have to maintain that server again, but we still have to worry about which server size are we going to choose. Uh, in contrast, you've got, say, DynamoDB with the SQL database from AWS to give an example of earlier. Uh, so in some ways, it's that on the spectrum you've mentioned about like, the, the billing, like do you worry about paying per request or paying per instance hours? But then of course you've got the gray area again where you can buy provision capacity in Lambda 
and now you've just broken that billing model because you're paying constantly. So yeah, I think maybe we shouldn't get too hung up on where on the line of the spectrum is one side serverless and the other side not. And maybe it's actually about yeah, the style of applications and the way that you're approaching solving these problems. Just going through the, so we've talked about those major cloud providers. What about on-prem? What about things like OpenFAS and Knative? Yeah, I think uh, for, for on-prem, is the, is the things like Knative and the OpenFAS is, in, is interesting uh, because I think they make a lot of sense for certain class of, uh, uh, of organizations, uh, things in the organization that already so invest into having, you know, running their own infrastructure. Maybe they have some uh, uh, needs for us uh, to running their infra- own infrastructure. Maybe it could be regulatory requirements. It could be security. It could be anything, you know, something else. Even though I think for security, it's an interesting one because uh, maybe like five, 10 years ago, people would you know, worry about the cloud because of security. But nowadays, people want to go into the cloud because of security. I was talking to a few investment banks uh, uh, and uh, you know, that's the reason why they're going into the cloud because uh, um, just offers much better security than they're able to do themselves. Um, I guess uh, with uh, things that open files, uh, you know, if you don't have to, if you don't have, so you, you already have your uh, infrastructure platform, and your you know you already have the expertise to run it and build it, and you don't want to be able to, you, know, you don't want to have to sort of rewrite all your applications so that uh, you're using you, know, you you don't you know, you're running your entire application, your entire system on the you know, lambda and whatnot. Then OpenFast allows those companies to uh, guess you know, dip their toe in, in uh, dip their toe in the water and then give the developers some of the benefits you get from uh, you know, serverless in terms of that event model event driven uh, programming model and also in, in terms of uh, being able to deploy really small units of code and have uh, uh, somebody else still in the company <laughs> uh, managing the infrastructure the scaling of it the load balancing and things like that so it gives you a lot of this I guess the developer benefits uh, to organizations who um who otherwise are tied to the uh, running and maintaining their own infrastructure. Uh, but if you are you know, a startup and uh, you're building a new thing, then I probably wouldn't recommend going down that route because uh, it just you know, it doesn't make sense for you to be managing your own infrastructure when all you want to do is to sell people socks. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So if we return our focus to, to the public cloud, uh, you're clearly very passionate about serverless and you believe it offers loads of benefits. So, so what kind of applications would serverless frameworks and the serverless services be best suited for? Um, I, I guess the most application nowadays uh, can be built uh, using serverless technologies, or at least a mix of, uh, well, I guess partially using serverless technologies. Um, I guess the main consideration is more the non-functional requirements. Uh, for example, if you have uh, you know, ultra lay, uh, sorry, ultra low latency uh, requirement for because you're building like a, a mobile game where you need a consistent, you know, sub 100 millisecond response time uh, all the time then uh, you may not be able to achieve that using something like Lambda because occasionally you are going to see cold starts and other sort of latency spikes. Um, if you have to do something that requires uh, long-running processes, uh, things like a really big ETL job, then the, again, the Lambda is, has got the execution time limits. Um, and uh, you, know, you, you, you may not, you, you can work around it, but then by the time you put in all that effort to work around it, you may as well just start a Fargate container and then just uh, run your long-running task uh, uh, in the in, in in there. There's also if you're running applications, or at least part of your application is the super high throughput, 
then the again that cost model, the, the pricing model of a paper request can start to work against you. If you got something that's simple, like a really simple basic API, but then it has to run at super high throughput, then you may just decide to move that workload into a containers environment because uh, it just allows you to have a better pricing by paying for uptime because the pay for uptime is uh, usually a lot cheaper at the scale. Uh, but again, you can make that decision on a case by case basis. This is not, it's, you know, service is not right for every single workload. But then, even even I was talking to some of uh, some of the guys at the Netflix uh, platform team, and even they were telling me that not everything at Netflix runs at Netflix scale. Uh, you've got lots of things that just you know just doesn't do a lot of the traffic. Uh, but then you've got a few of them, a few of APIs that just gets called every time someone does anything. So you've got you know, millions of requests per second. So. No, make the so having you no know, serverless in there is is a, is a powerful tool, especially as you're starting out. You, you know, you start with serverless, and as you, you know become more successful, you as you scale, you may decide, okay, some part of it I want to move into containers because uh, you know, that's where all the load is is going through and it's getting more expensive. Um, whereas everything else can still just stay in the Lambda functions where you get the nice uh, scaling behavior automatically and you also you get the nice pricing where you don't pay for them when they're, not, when they're not running. Excellent. So yeah, that's a nice list of things where serverless might not be the right fit. And it feels like for pretty much everything else, we could certainly consider serverless. Uh, so you mentioned about uh, the triggers for executing your Lambda functions. So should we think of this in terms of uh, particularly strong for event-driven systems, and by events, like that could include HTTP requests coming in. That is an event, or data flows are a series of events. Is that one of the most common use cases for Lambda and serverless applications? Yeah, and I would say uh, things like uh, REST APIs is uh, super popular because everyone kind of needs an API. Uh, even when we talk about event-driven architectures, I guess people don't you know lump uh, REST APIs into that category, but really. An HTTP request is an event, <laughs> and uh, it actually works quite well in that in, the, in that model with Lambda. Um, uh, yeah, I say REST APIs is probably the most popular one uh, in terms of uh, different things people do. But then there's also a lot of uh, uh, you know, processing events off of EventBridge or SNS or SQS, uh, picking up you no know, task of um, uh, of those you know, queues of some description. Uh, data data pipelines is also in the popular one as well. A lot of uh, I guess the data analytics uh, you know, kind of uh, system, at least the subsystems, would be using things like uh, fire, Kinesis Firehose or Kinesis Data Streams to uh, ingest events and then the, uh, batch them and send them to Lambda functions to do some additional processing, transformation, and whatnot, and then uh, have that. Um, and then have the have a, a something like a Kinesis Firehose to then bash them up, put them into S3, so that you can then hook up a, a Athena to do queries on, on those data, and then use QuickSight to then visualize the data into some kind of a, you know, a, a visual dashboard and things like that. Um, there's also a lot of GraphQL now. I'm seeing more and more of that. Uh, certainly, my last couple of projects are all using uh, GraphQL with AppSync and the Lambda. And that's also a super, super productive uh, stack uh, where you can get so much done uh, just with one person. I feel, I feel like I, I'm like a one-man army nowadays. I can take the you know, entire project and just build it on my own um, super, super quickly as well. 
And because again, I don't have to worry about all of that infrastructure. I can just you know, write a hook up a, a resolver, write a few lines of uh, VTL code. I say, right, I've really just been go to documentations, copy a template, uh, replace the bits I need, and then uh, you know, off you go. You can get things done really, really quickly without having to worry a lot about the infrastructure and, all, and the security of uh, of the OS and all of that. Just focus on your application code. In one of the projects I worked on last year uh, with client, we built a new social network, and I basically built a backend in like you know, four weeks working part-time. Uh, this, this is the sort of thing that we have taken a team of people a few months to do in the past. Uh, nowadays, you can, just, you, can get them done, you can get them done really, really quickly and scales really well as well and cheaply. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great point. It occurs to me that you know maybe finally with serverless consumption models, we're finally realizing the promise of cloud in the pay-as-you-go sense. You know, we can scale down to zero and not pay anything, and we can, in theory, scale up to infinite demand because we're not limited by the size of us of a single server, and we can deal with everything in between. We're scaling at the finest granularity possible, the the granularity of an individual event or an individual request. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, that that particular project uh, we went live, and uh, I think we had we skipped, we went up to about a bunch of thousand requests per day, uh, pretty quickly. Uh, it was uh, it was a social media, it was a social network app for university students to do sports. Uh, and and it launched just in that tiny window of like a couple of months when the things weren't being uh, weren't in lockdown, um, and uh, no, we scaled straight away. And uh, I think we were paying something like sixty dollars a month uh, for our AWS environment, uh, and most of that was on apps in caching, uh, just because. Uh, 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 everything was really cacheable, so we were able to get like 99% cash hit rate, and uh, we were paying zero for Lambda because uh, the cash the cash hit rate was so good. Uh, we we you know we didn't even hit the, the the we didn't exceed the the free tier on the Lambda service, and we were paying like four dollars on on Dam DB or something like that. Um, so yeah, and uh, the system just scales really well, uh, and uh, the client was super happy because the last time they did they tried to launch, uh, they they released something on you know, two PHP servers which went down within ten minutes of launching because you know you got all the students that get notified by the university that hey go join this app so then you can do some sports and whatever with the sports program that they offer the university offers, uh, and so, you know, straight away the app went uh, went down and uh, so it was uh, pretty embarrassing for the client. Uh, so it was, you know, it was pretty um, important for them for this launch to go you know, smoothly, and everything went smoothly. There was no problems, there was no issues with uh, uh, scaling, and uh, and yeah, so the client was really happy. And the fact that uh, we weren't paying huge amounts uh, for the infrastructure was also a, a bigger plus for the client as well. And uh, one of the things that uh, I guess um, you also get is the fact that even you know when things are when there are like a day you know, a zero day was it day zero uh, security uh, patches uh, you no know, AWS would just do it for you. I remember when the Spectre meltdown happened, uh, the team I was working in at the time, the company I was working in, uh, we had a mix of containers and Lambda functions, and uh, you know me and the DevOps guys that uh, we were spending a couple of days uh, just trying to patch all the different AMIs we had and uh, for ECS cluster and all the container images we. Had had as well. Uh, and then I saw a tweet from Chris Munns, who's the, I think he's the, he leads the developer advocates team at the, uh, for the serve for Lambda. For Lambda. Uh, he just tweeted out that uh, all the, uh, all the infrastructure running Lambda and the Fargate has been patched for both Spectre and Meltdown. And then I realized that I wasn't even thinking about my Lambda functions because again, that side of security is somebody else's problem. And I guess that you can, 
No, it's just one small sentence, but that sentence of you know taking care of uh, open system security is such a huge class of uh, attack vectors and something that uh, we don't do very well, uh, and all the networking around them as well. If you look at um, a lot of the sort of compromises uh, that's happened in the past, uh, is is not because the EC2 instances was left public or maybe uh, well, God forbid, the, you know, if people leave their Kubernetes cluster open as well. I've seen uh, some of the support scanning uh, software that found uh, that the port that the Kubernetes controller is on. And so people are able to use, uh, uh, we'll say that, um, was that the command line tool, was that the Kube control or something like that, uh, to, to actually access someone else's uh, publicly available, well, accessible cluster. Uh, things like that is uh, is easy to forget. It's an easy mistake to make. And fortunately, when you don't have to worry about the, the underlying infrastructure and the open system security, uh, someone else has already done it for you. That's a great point. And, you know, it's the AWS shared responsibility model. When you're consuming servers from AWS, you're responsible for the server, the security in the cloud. But when you're consuming serverless, the AWS responsibility model pushes that responsibility down to the people who are best at taking care of those considerations at scale, AWS themselves. What a great point. Yeah, absolutely. And also, yeah. you also get the, the multi-AZ redundancy out of the box as well, which is something that, again, you have to do yourself and which makes your capacity planning more interesting. You have to work out, okay, we need six servers all the time, but then the, if one zone goes down, what's the number of servers that we need for each of the AZs? And the, again, things that you, you, know, you learn over time and then there's... You know, but, um, that, that's a great point, actually, Jan. And you mentioned those words, actually, capacity planning at the top of the podcast, Jan. And I think some of our listeners may be thinking, wait a minute, I thought cloud meant we didn't have to do capacity planning anymore. Can we just have a, a just a quick diversion? Uh, when does capacity planning start to rear its head again uh, if we're not using serverless? Yeah, so you still need to know how many EC2 instances that you want to be running your application uh, at, at, at a minimum and also at a maximum as well. And also you want to make sure that uh, you spread them around so that uh, you don't have a case where if one availability zone, uh, i.e. a data center is having some networking issue or whatever issues, uh, that your entire application goes down. So you want to put your, your you know, spread your, your instances across multiple availability zones and then have a load balancer in front of them and choose the right uh, uh, low balancing, uh, uh, what do you call it, strategy or logic, or, or I forgot the, the sorry, algorithm, so that uh, the traffic is uh, you know, as much as possible, even if spread across multiple availability zones and all of that. Um, so it's, you know, it's capacity planning is, I guess, most important when you are just about going live. Uh, you have to decide what's the you know, minimum in, number of instances you want to run because uh, when you get it wrong and uh, there's more you know, there's more throughput than your application can handle, then uh, you have to wait for the resource uh, for the resources to be available uh, with uh, the things like ECS and the Fargate. Uh, maybe I can maybe I just talk about them separately because they're slightly different. With ECS, where you're not using Fargate, uh, so you're still running containers against your own EC2 instances, which means uh, you got 10 running, great. Suddenly, there's a spike. And now, all of a sudden, you, know, you don't have enough containers. Uh, but then you don't have EC2 instances to allocate them on either. Now, you have to wait 5, 10 minutes for EC2 instances to be available so that you can spawn new containers against, those, uh, against your cluster. So... That's where things like Fargate, which is a little bit more on the sort of serverless in terms of that spectrum, where you don't have to worry, worry about the underlying infrastructure, the, the virtual machine clusters. 
that that so that kind of helps you in terms of uh, that capacity planning where you know you have more um, you have no sort of more room for mistakes even if you said okay all right you know we start with two but turns out you need ten uh, Fargate can scale up to ten really quickly because uh, they are going to be spawned against the instances that are owned and run and secure and protect and and uh, so protected by AWS. Uh, and the same goes with Lambda as well. They can go from uh, single Lambda execution to 3,000 concurrent Lambda executions uh, in no time. And if you need to go beyond that, you can go to as far as you need, but then you're then limited by some limits around how quickly you're able to go in terms of the number of concurrent executions. Um, so capacity planning becomes less of an issue, or it's something that you don't really have to worry too much about until you get to a certain, uh, a certain scale. Uh, whereas with EC2, you always have to worry about uh, what's the minimum number you're going to run. Uh, and then you have to worry about, okay, well, if we're going to always run five or whatever, uh, should we be paying for reserve instances? Should we you know, pay for that? Uh, do, we, do we get a one-year deal? Do we get a three-year deal? Which size do we, uh, do, do, do we buy? Um, all of that becomes things that you have to sort of you know, calculate and work out, and then there's a cost to, uh, to, to getting them wrong as well. Thanks for indulging my little diversion there. Thank you. Yeah, so you've made loads of really good points there about the strength of serverless. So just to highlight a few of the things you said before we move on from that, like I think that the cost is obviously a fantastic one. So almost everyone who's running Lambda and serverless applications has tiny bills in comparison with stuff that's running on EC2 from our experience and, and what we've heard in the community. Uh, same with like the great stories from Comic Relief moving to serverless and cutting their bill massively and so on. Like one of the main times we see high bills with Lambda is when somebody's actually done a coding error and they get a Lambda function that calls a Lambda function and it goes into an infinite loop and it's so fast it manages to call itself a lot of times. Uh, the other one you said was about, you know, like this one-man army, that level of productivity. So, you know, this is the, the goal and the promise of cloud. You get to focus on your business logic. You get to innovate faster. You get to iterate faster and finally realizing that. But of course, you doing that, like you've written so many serverless projects, so much experience doing that. Let's talk about uh, new folk getting into serverless. So uh, imagine that there's a team are currently running their applications on VMs in the cloud. So if they're thinking about using serverless, like what advice would you give them to get started? Yeah, I guess... Um... Yes, I guess a good analogy there is, uh, do you guys ever watch any of those uh, superhero um, you know, films, uh, TV shows? Uh, you know how... Lots, yeah. Uh, lots, good. Uh, you know how, uh, was it the, 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 the Man of Steel? Um, when Superman, when the Clark Kent was, uh, when, when he was young, he was trying to get, you know, get used to his uh, powers. He was hearing all these noises, uh, voices, uh, uh, well, sounds, and, and suddenly you know, he was... Um, you know, pushing doors or whatever by mistake or lifting buses out of the water. Um, you know, he couldn't quite control his uh, powers until he got a hang of it. Uh, and, and I have to think of you know, using serverless as a superpower, but it takes time to learn and you know, get a hang of it. Uh, and at first, you're going to be hearing things that you, you, know, you, don't have, you, you, know, you can't make sense of. You're going to accidentally break doors and things like that, furniture around the house. Uh, but eventually, you're going to get a hang of it and you can fly around. You can uh, shoot lasers from your eyes. <laughs> Not literally, but uh, uh, metaphorically. Um, and I guess uh, in terms of you know, learning, uh, getting, getting to that, uh, that place where you are, you know, you've got your superpower and you know how to use it. 
I think you really have to give yourself the chance to fail uh, repeatedly. And uh, many, you know, most of us, we kind of learn by doing things and making mistakes over many, many years. Obviously, not everyone can afford uh, training their team over the course of five, 10 years. So things like uh, video courses out there, I've got a few training uh, workshops out there called Production Ready Serverless. Uh, you know, things like that is going to really help you in terms of uh, getting, you know, learning, waiting to know, at least like putting you in the right path uh, quickly. And then the, from there, you can figure out uh, how to apply the things that you've learned to your own projects and then um, ask for help. There's a lot of uh, people out there, consultants like myself, who offers themselves uh, to help companies. Uh, I've worked with maybe like 60, 70 companies in the last couple of years uh, as an independent consultant offering advice. Um, you know, a lot of time you get the same questions around the, how do I do deployment? What's the right way to do CI/CD? Uh, what services do I use? Uh, am I making the right architectural decisions? Um, so a lot of those things, so once you've sort of done it a couple of times, it becomes something that you can just you know, quite easily pull out of a hat. Uh, becomes a good, becomes like a habit um, that you know, you know, this is where you want to do something like this. This is what service you should use. Uh, these are the things you should, be, you should be thinking about. Becomes almost second nature. But again, when you're new, is you know, give yourself the, the give your help, give yourself a chance to uh, to learn by doing, you know, doing POCs and throw away. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't put yourself under that pressure where the first project you're going to be doing is going to go into production uh, because you are going to make mistakes. Uh, and that is kind of the point. That's how you learn. But allow yourself to fail in a way that's um, they can fail fast and fail cheaply. Uh, so that you know, you, you know, organize things like hackathons, uh, uh, game days where people can actually try things out, uh, and then just let them you know learn by doing and by making mistakes. And then so that by the time they actually do the real thing, uh, they've already get those mistakes out of the, uh, the system. And also, you know, get them help. Uh, find people like myself, like others who offer themselves as, a, as, as, as consultants um, to help you, to help your team and uh, put, uh, put them onto training, like, you know, courses, uh, workshops out there. There's plenty available. There's those, uh, you know, the ones I offer. There's also ones that AWS offers as well. Um, but yeah, you know, give them the help they need because uh, a lot of teams, they do struggle, especially teams that have never done, I guess, microservices because when you're using you know, Lambda, you're building the systems where you are connecting with lots of different other services. Uh, oftentimes you are building microservices or at least you are hitting the same problems that often comes with microservices. Things like, how do I do distributed tracing? How do I get uh, observability into my application when so many things are happening uh, asynchronously? Um, how do I write, you know, create the right boundaries so that one team can make a mistake and that's not going to take down the entire system? Uh, things like that. You know, those, are, those are solved problems. Uh, we know how to solve them. Uh, but your team may not know the solutions or may not, even, uh, may not be even aware of the problems. So give them a chance to sort of learn. Uh, and um, also, I guess, importantly, if you, especially for a large company, don't just open a floodgate and let everybody go you know, crazy. Uh, find one or two teams that are, you know, I guess, better um, better suited for trying out new things and then discovering the uh, the, the way that was going to you know, work for your organization and all the constraints that you have. Uh, I like to call this you know, like a pathfinder team whereby let them sort of experiment, let them try things out, let them make mistakes and then work out, okay, for our organization, what's the right tool to use in terms of infrastructure uh, automation? Uh, is it CDK? Is it SAM? Is it Servlet? Is, is it something else? And how should we organize our repos? Is it uh, one repo? Is that the right answer for us? Is, or is it uh, we should have uh, one repo per service? Uh, do we need to have a multiple uh, AWS accounts? And the answer is yes, uh, 
question is uh, how many do you need? Do you need a one per environment or do you need a one per environment per team or even maybe uh, per developer? Those are the sort of things that you want to figure out, uh, but you don't want everybody to make their own decisions, especially for large company. So pick one or two teams that are, I guess, um, the suited for doing that kind of experiments. So some team, I guess, uh, I don't know if you guys know Simon Wardley. Uh, he's you know, famous for the Wardley yep. mapping. He often talks about also the idea of different, I guess, uh, um, I was archetypes. I forgot what he calls them. But the people who are uh, who are who are good at uh, creating something, a service out of uh, components, people other other people put together, making like a really nice service. And people who are sort of good at the sort of genesis phase where you're trying out something new, you know, you're experimenting with something, and you, you know you need to be able to fail. You need to fail repeatedly so that you can find the, the, the right solution. Even Einstein talks about how, you know, what's that, what's that quote that he made? Uh, that he, you know, he failed so many times. Uh, um, you know, he, said, he, didn't find, he didn't find the right way. He, he found the 900 ways that it, it, it doesn't work or something like that. I forgot a quote. <laughs> um, but yeah, you need, the, 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 I guess, uh, the creativity needs failure. And that's the necessary component for you to be, uh, uh, for creativity to, to happen. And also, the, you know, there's other, other you know, teams that are good at uh, following the, the path and then, you know, uh, be, uh, be really disciplined. So find the right teams that, and right people uh, who are of that mindset that they're happy to fail, they're willing to fail in order to learn, and then let them figure out what's the right way for your organization to adopt serverless. Because when you're going serverless, you're really going full cloud native. Uh, I hate people when people use the word cloud native to describe containers because uh, <laughs> the CNCF have claimed that name somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it drives me nuts because uh, the whole idea of that of portability is important for cloud native. Is uh, it just counts it's, it's counting it's, 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 it's the opposite. Um, no, when you say something is native to to to, to a place, uh, it you no, know, you're not you're not implying that that thing is really portable. You can you can plug it out and then move anything else. Uh, it's really that thing belongs there. So when using cloud and all the different services, that's when you're really going cloud native. Uh, you are so sort of buying into the cloud. And I think this is where. I guess uh, from from I guess uh, the, the, from a wider industry point of view, uh, you know, companies uh, need to adopt more of a, like a partnership uh, sort of view of their cloud provider as opposed to more of like a um, an adversary kind of view. And this is something that the, the motor, I guess, the automobile industry went through as well. They used to have this uh, uh, model where they kind of see their, their supplier as uh, in that sort of in that sort of adversary view, where they have lots of different suppliers so that they sort of get them fight each other, and then you kind of minimize your exposure to one of them, uh, to, to each one of them. But then they also found that sort of the same problems that we found is that okay, in terms of productivity, in terms of efficiency, it's actually really bad. You've got all these suppliers, but you're not taking full advantage of the relationship that you have with them. And for each one of them, you don't really have a strong relationship because, uh, well, you know, they're just one of many. So the whole, so, so the whole sort of automobile industry has moved towards, over the last couple of decades, a model where they see the suppliers more of a partner so that... Um, no, you sort of, you sort of build up that long term partnership, and then you get as much as you can from the suppliers that you do decide to go with. And I think teams that the, that get the most value out of the cloud is the is the teams that they see the same sort of partnership view with uh, the cloud provider that they, they decide to go with, whichever one it is, rather than always you know, thinking about oh you no know, this cloud provider is going to stab us in the back and it's going to raise prices, even though. 
historically, there's no evidence whatsoever to suggest that cloud provider would just suddenly go, okay, now we've got everybody in, we're just going to raise the prices because we can. In fact, you see the opposite happening. The price is constantly dropping. Um, AWS alone, I don't know, announced something like hundred something different price reductions over the last five years. Um, and then the same goes to other cloud providers as well. So this whole I, this whole notion of uh, okay, uh, they're gonna sort of play you know, they're gonna play bingo with the pricing is just uh, it's it just it just doesn't exist. It's it's possible, uh, but you know, I guess we don't we don't judge people we don't judge people as guilty until there's evidence uh, that says they are. Um, I went on yeah. a bit of a tangent. I forgot where what was your question. <laughs> Loads of great points, and just. On that last one of, yeah, we talk to a lot of customers who are concerned about lock-in. And frankly, it's not the thing they should be primarily concerned about. They should be concerned about, can I use this cloud provider very well? Can I stop doing the undifferentiated heavy lifting? Can I improve innovation? Can I deliver business value faster? Now, on the flip side, when we're talking to very large organizations, like a bank who's too big to fail, then, yeah, they are not going to put all their eggs in one basket for one cloud provider. But they're also big enough to become experts at multiple cloud providers. Uh, so yeah, just picking up on some of the other great advice you gave for uh, companies who are or folk who are getting started in the cloud, is that thing of uh, yeah, make room for failure and experimentation and learning. Of course, you don't need to come across all these failures yourself, like you mentioned about that at your production ready serverless training course. Uh, I've been on that and would thoroughly recommend it to everyone. Uh, another piece of advice we hear commonly said is. People saying, like, read the docs first. Um, and although that is good advice, like, my concern with it is that uh, if somebody's trying to pick up a new paradigm, such as serverless, and to do that well, when they're reading those that documentation, like, do they really have that kind of framework of understanding to hang those facts off that they're reading about? Or is it really quite hard to actually, you know, understand and apply that without having somebody like on hand to answer some of those questions, fill in those gaps that they didn't get from that documentation. Like, I think you're completely right that you need to experiment and build things rather than just be able to like read the docs and understand the first time. Yeah, especially with AWS documentations, they are really thorough, but also they are um, uh, they're verbose. They have a lot of volume and every service you go to, um, you know, there are hundreds of pages of the documentations and unless you have some basic understanding of you know how they fit together, it becomes really difficult for you to make sense of it all. But also, you know, you, you know, you're feeling your head full of information that may not be very useful uh, for you, for at least for what it is you're doing. I think in terms of uh, getting yourself to the next level, where you really deeply understand the service you're working with, um, uh, you know, reading documents uh, is really important. But to figure out. No, no. To, uh, to start with, what are the services for me? Uh, which services should I be using before you even so home in on one or two of them that you need for your application? Then you, uh, I think that that is um, that's probably not something that you want to start by just reading the docs. Uh, you want to start by just trying things out. Uh, maybe follow some tutorials. I do the same thing as well when there's uh, services I'm not familiar with. I try to find you know, tutorials. I want to find some, you know, something that can allows me to. Get a feel of the land, um, uh, uh, maybe you know, in five ten minutes, because I think you can learn ninety percent of what you need very very quickly. It's the last ten percent that's really difficult. Uh, the last ten percent probably does require you to read the documentations very deeply, but also uh, I can't stress this enough. There's a lot of things that you only learn by doing because uh, the documentation themselves often doesn't cover specific scenarios that are 
you know, that most people don't see or things that uh, people don't uh, they don't think to mention because again, you know, who will be doing that until it's not, until you actually do? So I mean, I I I, I learn a lot uh, by just. Now coming up with hypothesis, how does this actually work? And then I do it, I try it, see what actually happens. Then I can form a better model in my head in terms of how the service actually behaves in certain you know, peculiar uh, um, circumstances. And I've also found places where the documentation is just flat out wrong. And uh, even the step functions, the pricing page was wrong uh, for, as, you know, for as long as um, until last year, uh, because they always said that uh, the step functions that start and end states, uh, they, 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 you know, they're not charged until I spend I guess a day, um, you know, running a step function execution and then wait for like five hours or whatever for AWS bidding to catch up and then check how many states actually got charged. And then I found that, oh, actually, the documentation is wrong. The pricing page is wrong. Uh, and then I, you know, I reported it back to AWS. They fixed it pretty much straight away, which is you no know, credit to them. Uh, they do react really well for, uh, for this kind of uh, uh, feedback. Um, but again, you know, Things like that you only learn by doing, and because uh, and uh, you know and uh, and yeah. So um, especially for failure, failure behavior, I think that's a big one. That a lot of time documentation talks about a happy path, uh, but how things fail. Those are things that you kind of only learn uh, by doing. So um, what's it? Oh, I think it was the I think it's the Dreyfus uh, uh, model for skew acquisition. You talk about uh, what's it competency uh, the different levels. Uh, I think it's beginner and then competent and then the, you are you are uh, expert and then to go from expert to to master or something like that. The last level is about you know you have to go beyond. The, the beaten path. You have to try things out. Uh, I guess uh, a good analogy for a movie would be a, a, a Inception. You know how uh, a Kobe, he's always talking about how, oh, you don't want to go into the limbo and uh, you, you, know, you shouldn't do this and that. Uh, and then he goes and does, and then he goes and does it himself uh, because he's so he's sort of gone beyond that beaten path. He's sort of learned how the system works. He's got a more complete picture, a mental model of how a system works. And he's able to go beyond the, I guess, the best practices, the recommendations. And to get to that point, you do need to experiment. You do need to form a really complete picture of how a system actually works. And you can't get that by just reading documentations. Yeah, I think that going back to your production-ready serverless is you know, helping people to not fall into those pitfalls initially themselves, give them some pointers, but yeah, you're right that you do need to then experience running those systems in production before you can then really fully appreciate that and learn those things. But I think even getting beyond beginner is hard. So, you know, Corey Quinn's described this as well in his uh, blogs and podcasts about uh, folk having to spend like, a couple of weeks hacking around before the first Lambda function actually works properly. And if you just look at a blog and click exactly where it says, you might get something up and running but you probably don't really understand what it's done. And I think there is a surprising level of difficulty for uh, like understanding what these steps really mean uh, for even just the basics. Um, like similarly, I've been to uh, some of these uh, serverless meetups and speaking to folk afterwards, then you go half the audience you know, love the talk and half the audience just didn't understand what was being talked about because they didn't have that foundational knowledge to understand uh, what was being said uh, and uh, name dropping various services and so on, it can be really hard. But uh, as well as the learning, then you've also mentioned some other challenges. So let's focus on some of those other ones. Uh, 
What are the other main challenges of adopting serverless? What would you say that people are likely to struggle with? I think the biggest struggle in terms of uh, um, adopting serverless for companies, at least from my experience, has been that people uh, getting come coming to grips with uh, the challenges that comes with microservices, understanding how they do observability and things like that. And also for teams that are new to AWS, it just comes to grips with all these uh, different AWS services. Because when it comes to serverless, you're not just talking about Lambda. Uh, very likely you're talking about Lambda with maybe five, six different services that you need to use. Uh, CloudFormation, IAM, those are the fundamentals, things that you need to know uh, to, to operate in AWS. Again, if you're new to AWS, those become uh, uh, things that you also have to learn as well. So when, you, uh, when I'm working with clients that are guess, new to it, I often sort of try to, I often advise them to limit the number of things they have to learn in one go. Uh, if they have to learn you know, Lambda, okay, if they have to learn the DAMDB, if they've learned uh, um, IEM and CloudFormation, then the, I, I often try to sort of, you know, help them limit the number of things they have, you know, they're changing in one go. So maybe it's a case that uh, you stick with uh, relational databases uh, because that's at least one part that you know already. Uh, maybe you don't go into this full sort of event-driven architecture and just have one big monolith uh, system where you've got lots of Lambda functions behind one API uh, rather than being you know, fancy and create in lots of different microservices, uh, because again, that is a paradigm that maybe you're not familiar with uh, enough to, to do just yet. So give yourself the chance to do it step by step, and then over time you can uh, you know you can uh, you can go more uh, full event full full event driven using lots of different services, and everything is uh, flowing through events, and uh, and then you, you know you're using all these uh, tools like Remigo and others to do all the visibility for you. Um, all of that can happen, but you know, it, it helps you to do them gradually rather than in one go. Um, I guess I can't stress this enough that uh, even though I feel like I've got a superpower with you know superpower with serverless, but uh, I've acquired my skill over the course of 10, 15 years. So uh, you know, chances are you haven't had the same journey as me. So uh, give yourself the chance to do it, uh, to take it one step at a time, as opposed to try to do the whole the whole thing one go. I think lots of people see people uh, to talk about serverless, talk about you know, all, the amazing, all the amazing things they're doing and think, oh, this sounds simple. I can just do it myself as well. And then they realize, like you said, uh, actually it's not that straightforward. Every service is used has, quite, has got quite a bit of depth. You have to go into, you have to learn and you have to read, you have to sort of experiment to figure out how it actually works. Um, so I think, yeah. So I think that that's, I think that's really important that we we should uh, um, recognize as a as as as, as, a, as a community that this stuff is hard. Uh, yeah. It's simple once you get a hang of it, once you know what you're doing, but it's super hard uh, if you're coming brand new to it. Yeah, and I think you kind of mentioned that before when you said you know um, people who are used to running microservices will will take to serverless more naturally because they're used to things like distributed tracing and extensive automation around CI CD. But that's that's a lot to bite off if you're in the legacy mindset of deploying monoliths onto servers. So yeah, some great points there. Yeah, I think there's uh, some services out there that uh, you can probably check out um, that's kind of give you some, you know, uh, I guess a higher level of abstraction that you can use. Um, uh, things like Netlify, things like um, uh, what's, it? Um, uh, what's the other one? I, I forgot. There's quite a few different services like that, which um, you know, for a team that are new to it, uh, maybe they're you know they're quite good at least to get them started. And then as you learn more and more how things actually work, and then start to sort of get your hands dirty, then the, you can start to sort of deep, you know, uh, um, go deeper on that uh, abstraction layer. 
Yeah, it reminds me of a Martin Fowler blog for adopting microservices. And he's got a picture at the top that says, you must be this tall to use microservices. Uh, and it's really saying there's lots of prerequisites in order to be able to use microservices well. And I think the same applies a lot for serverless. So if you're brand new to CICD, then you can have a lot to learn. If you've never run a properly distributed system where transactions are spread across uh, multiple components, then you're going to find it really hard to troubleshoot these things. If you haven't sorted out aggregated logging uh, and so on, like there's a lot to learn. But at the same time, like when we're looking at uh, new developers coming through, like should they really learn to run stuff on VMs first? Probably not. They should probably leapfrog all of that and go straight to serverless, learn best practices straight away rather than getting bogged down in all the stuff that VMs uh, give us. So uh, wrapping up here, uh, let's talk more about your day job. So you've mentioned some training courses and consulting services that you do. Can you give us a bit more detail about those and where people can uh, find out more and get in contact with you? Yeah, sure. So I work as an independent consultant. Uh, I do a lot of uh, sort of advisory work with companies in terms of uh, architectural reviews or helping them come up with the right architecture. Uh, or just in terms of you know giving them advice on how should they um, how should they approach this application, uh, what's the right stack for them, and uh, based on their constraints and whatnot. Uh, but also do some development work as well for a few clients. Um, I can only do a couple of those at a time, so I'm fully booked for the rest of the year <laughs> for that. Uh, and also, also do some uh, training courses. I've uh, got the AppSync Masterclass. So you can go to appsyncmasterclass.com, uh, which is a video course, that on-demand on video course, that you can uh, use it and learn how to use uh, AppSync and Lambda and DamDB and build a Twitter clone, which is actually surprisingly fully featured, <laughs> uh, which has done so much work there that uh, is, um, yeah, it's got about 20 something hours of content already. Uh, we're hoping, hopefully to, hopefully uh, we finish the, the whole course by the end of the year, um, but also do uh, you know, workshops as, uh, on the just, uh, I guess, you know, Lambda, API Gateway and uh, Event Bridge. Uh, so the, I guess the more common stack people use, uh, that's called the production ready serverless, where you learn to build a, I guess, e-commerce uh, site, a very really simple one. Um, using entirely service components uh, with API Gateway, Lambda, DB and EventBridge, and I show you how to how to do observability, how to do the distributed tracing, logging, uh, CI/CD, and cover a lot of security and the deployment automation and all of that. So it should cover a, a pretty big, a pretty wide spectrum of the different things that you would need uh, in most applications. Obviously, if you've got other use and other specific requirements for things that uh, that you have in your application, then the, we're not cover we're not going to cover the entire catalog of AWS services. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to do here, but I'm trying to cover the basic things that most people need in the application, uh, and also show them you know how beyond the, the sort of coding, but also how do you do the so operational side of things in terms of having the right logging and everything else in place, so that when something goes wrong, uh, you can actually debug things. And also show you how to write tests for them as well in terms of the integration and engine tests and unit tests uh, and when to write those and how to write those. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those courses I think that's going to give you maybe 80% uh, of the way in terms of uh, getting yourself ready and getting started. Uh, and even people who's been running service uh, workloads in production, they tend to find learn something new there as well. Uh, because there is, like I said, there is a lot of depth in terms of, uh, of different things you could do. Um, so yeah. Uh, uh, check out, check it out at the production ready serverless uh, in one word, dot com. Uh, we do both uh, two day intensive training for 
European students uh, as well as UK students uh, and as well as for I guess everybody else we have a, like like a what do you call it a self-paced uh, workshop where we do it you know we, we release the content uh, over the course of four weeks uh, there is a live Q&A at the end of every week uh, so you can you can do the content get your questions answered uh, on this on uh, discord and then also ask questions live as well doing those live Q&A sessions Super duper. Thank you very much, Yen. Um, worth, worth pointing out, we, we're using your Sunday name here, Yen, Yen Trey, but you're better known as the Burning Monk. That's right. Where, where does that come from? Uh, I'm a big fan of a Rage Against the Machine. And uh, so they are, so that, so their, their debut album is a picture of the, 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 um, the Burning Monk, who is the Vietnamese monk who set himself on fire in protest uh, back in the, I think, uh, 60s. Uh, to the um, uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, so yeah, that's that's where that, that's where the name came from. Oh yeah, if you want to stay in touch with me, you can find me as the Burning Monk on Twitter, uh, and uh, my blog is on the theburningmonk.com. Uh, I, I write a lot of stuff around serverless and AWS. So um, yeah, that's fantastic. So so not only a serverless hero, but also someone with great taste in music. Fantastic. <laughs> Yen, Burning Monk, thank you so much for uh, joining us on our podcast today. Thanks for sharing all those great insights. Uh, it's been a nice long conversation and uh, we've really enjoyed hearing what you've had to say. So thank you. Um, and thank you to our listeners for also uh, tuning in today and listening to us wax lyrical with Yen about uh, serverless. So we look forward to, to you tuning in next time. Uh, watch this space. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.